great to be here this morning, and we've got an excellent crowd today. Appreciate very much your desire to come and be with us and, and worship together. I hope that what I have to say this morning will be helpful to you in some way. I want to begin by reading from Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. The scripture says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Some of you may be wondering, some of you may be worrying if I'm starting a series on Hebrews this morning. I don't know the answer to that question to be completely transparent, but I've been wanting to talk about this passage for some time, and there are some things in here, some truths in this passage that I think every Christian really needs to focus in on and really uh, understand and realize the importance of this message. The book of Hebrews was written primarily to Jewish Christians uh, in sort of the latter half of the first century, somewhere around 65 AD or sometime before 70 AD, scholars generally agree. And so these Jewish Christians in this time would have, of course, already started suffering persecution by the hand of the Roman Empire. And in 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem and the temple were completely destroyed uh, by Titus and, and the Roman Empire. And so as you consider what they were going through and what they were about to go through, the message of the Hebrew writer here is particularly of interest to these people. It's a message of encouragement. It's a message of showing that Jesus Christ is superior in every way to, to anything else that they can imagine. And to, you know, we read from the scriptures that the, the Jewish Christians had a problem with clinging to that old law. There were the Judaizers who were trying to make the Gentile Christians observe parts of, or most of the old law. And so this is a very relevant message to what was happening in the church. And considering that the city of Jerusalem and the temple was about to be destroyed, these Jewish Christians needed to have their focus set on Christ where it belongs. If you've placed all of your hopes and your, your love and your devotion to this city and the temple, you're about to be sorely disappointed. And so as we consider the message of the Hebrew writer this morning contained within these verses, and specifically in verses 2 and 3, we have what many have called the seven wonders of Christ that I want to take a look at today. And these wonders or glories of Christ that we find here, these attributes of Jesus Christ, and what makes him superior to the law, to the prophets, to Moses, everything else that has come before. These are things that we need to take a look at and consider as well in our life. You know, I, don't, I doubt there is anyone in this room today who is tempted to go back to the law of Moses and observe that. But there are other things in this life that can draw our attentions away from God, that can take us away from his love, that can cause us to put our faith and our trust in other things. And so it's a message that's extremely relevant both at the time it was written and today as well. So in these first four verses, commonly called the prologue of the book of Hebrews, and it's written, I'm told, or have researched, because I'm not even an expert in English, much less Greek, but uh, I've heard that this is written in what's called high Greek, or more of a classical type of Greek that maybe like the philosophers would have used most of the New Testament is written in what's called Koine, or Common Greek. 
And I, I think of like English being spoken in a, in a donut shop by the old men that are there drinking coffee. And that English versus what you might hear at like a law school with, with people who are academic and so on speaking to one another. And the truth of either one of those languages is the same. Most of the New Testament is written in that common tongue, which it makes sense because I believe the Bible is written for common people to understand. Um, but the first four verses of Hebrews in particular, and most scholars agree that Hebrews as a whole was written very beautifully, that, that, that it was very artfully written. The only other two places in the New Testament where you find this high Greek is the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts, which leads a lot of people to think that Luke may have been the writer of Hebrews. Um, some people think it's Paul. The fact is we just really don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. One thing that has never been in question by the church throughout the years is the canonicity or, or whether or not the book of Hebrews is the inspired word of God. That has always been accepted by the church. We have writers as early as the first century quoting the book of Hebrews verbatim. So we know that it was held in regard as scripture by the early church. This is one sentence in the Greek. We, we, the English translation has it broken up into several sentences, but in Greek it's one sentence. And it has one main subject and one main verb, and that is this. God has spoken. God is the subject. Has spoken is the verb. And so we see this emphasis on this message that God has spoken to his people. And I want to start there because it's, I think the thrust of this whole message is Jesus is the final word of God to humanity. He is the last word, the final word, the complete word. And God is saying, listen to him. Listen to the message that Jesus Christ brings to us. We have our first couple of verses up there at the top. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, it says, he, And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Now God is reprimanding Miriam and Aaron for speaking out against Moses. And he's speaking to them from the pillar of cloud. And he's telling them, why are you trying to speak out against Moses? You know my relationship with Moses. And he talks about some of the methods that he uses to make himself known, to give his word to the people. Sometimes I speak to people in a vision, or sometimes they have a dream. We've seen instances in the Old Testament where God writes with his own hand, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, or the writing on the wall in Daniel. God, at many times and in many ways, has spoken to the, through the prophets to us. And that, that phrase, many times, can also mean many portions. It's always been in bite-sized pieces all throughout the years. And God has spoken in different ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. And the writer of Hebrews is not trying to minimize the ways in which God has communicated to his people in the past. And he's not trying to make those null and void or to say they don't matter. But what he is trying to say is Jesus is the final word of all of those messages. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 19, God gives a warning about them going after other gods and serving and worshiping them and the consequences of that. He says, if you do this, you will perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. God has always expected obedience from his people. He's always expected us to hear his voice. In our text up here, though, we have this crucial conjunction that always we want to pay attention to and look to because he's pivoting here. And he's saying, this is the way God used to speak to us, and he's done it in many ways. 
And it's been piecemeal, pieces and parts all throughout history to different people and in different ways. But now, in these last days, he has spoken. And there's a difference in the, the grammar, if you will, of God spoke this way in the past, but he has spoken. There's a finality to that. There's a punctuation mark, if you will. God has spoken through Jesus Christ, and he said everything that he needs to say to us through him. And it's all he will say, because there's nothing left. He has spoken through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 14, says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ was the word of God, is the word of God. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. So there's the word of God dwelling among us. He is the final word. He's God's full word revealed to us. Verse 17 says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Christ has made God known to us because he is God. He's God with us. God made flesh. The word of God made flesh. The fully incarnate word of God. And so... What the Hebrew writer is trying to say is, when God spoke to us in the past, that was important. We were supposed to listen to that. We were supposed to pay attention and heed that voice. But God's final word has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And we need to now listen to what he has to say. In Mark chapter 9, we find the story of the transfiguration. As James and Peter and John go up on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus was transfigured, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. Verse 4 says, There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Excuse me, not well pleased. My beloved Son, listen to him. That phrase is, of course, used many times throughout the New Testament, and At the baptism of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. You know, Peter, bless his heart, I I kind of identify with Peter because when I'm in an uncomfortable situation, um, I'm an introvert naturally, but when I'm in an uncomfortable situation and there's awkward silence, I feel like I have to say something. And Peter, he was terrified. But he's like, i got to say something. Somebody's got to say something about all this. Lord, let's make three tents or, or tabernacles to you and, and Moses and Elijah. And here's God saying, no, you listen to my son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And I feel that's what the Hebrew writer is saying to us as well when he talks about the majesty and the glory of Christ in these first four verses. How long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And he highlights seven different things, as we said, in these next few verses that we want to take a look at very briefly this morning, and talk about why we should listen to Christ, why we should listen to God's final word, his final message to humanity. Number one, he, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. What does that include? What does it not include? You know, we, we, we see phrases like this all the time in scriptures, and I don't think we think about the magnitude. He's the heir of all things. And when you consider our next point, which is that he's the creator of all things, it sort of makes sense that he's the heir of all things. Part of that has to play, comes to play into the work that he performed, his resurrection from the dead, and the reward from that, as we'll talk about later, too. But Jesus is the heir of all things. All things created, all things seen, unseen, he is the heir 
of all things. This was prophesied in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. I will tell thee the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Why should we listen to Jesus Christ over Moses and the prophets and all the other messages? Because he's the heir of all things. He created it all, and he will inherit it all. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to his message. He is the one that's going to inherit all things. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. We're very familiar with the first part of this passage where it talks about how let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, how he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself a new reputation, took on the form of a servant, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is the result, though, the therefore of that statement is, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus is the heir of all things, the ruler of all things. There are implications for you and I when you consider this. Based on other passages we have in the New Testament, Romans here, Romans chapter 8, verse 16. Listen to what Paul says. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and what? Fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. What's the implication for you and me if we're his? If we're children of God, if Jesus is the heir of all things, what does that make us? Well, if we're fellow heirs with Christ, that makes us the fellow heirs of all things. Why are you going to look somewhere else? Who are you going to look to? What system of law are you going to look to? Whether that's the law of Moses, whether that's your own self-righteousness, whether that's the things you can find in the world that you think are going to satisfy you and make you happy. Jesus is the heir of all things, and if you follow him, if you're his child, guess what? So are you. Wonderful, amazing. You know, I say implications. There's no implication. It's just flat out plainly stated here. We are fellow heirs with Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, number two. Makes sense, doesn't it? And you're going to find there's a lot of overlap in in these ideas. It's not like the writer just came up with seven seven different things that weren't related to one another at all. This all builds and forms one glorious picture of the Son of God, that he created the world through Jesus Christ. I'm assuming that everyone in this room is what we call a creationist. In other words, you believe that God created everything and you're not an evolutionist where you think this is all an accident. And I know we think about that all the time when we consider that God created the world, but I think sometimes we separate that from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the creator of the world. He's the creator of the universe as the scriptures clearly lay out. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Look at what we have here. Creation created by him, through him, and for him. Jesus is the word of God made flesh, right? We've already talked about that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The world was created through him. You know, John talked about that in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. 
John, above all the other writers of the Gospels, really highlights the deity of Christ. And this is the very beginning of that Gospel. He wants there to be no doubt who he is talking about. This wasn't just some man that came along and taught some good things. This was God made flesh. By him, through him, for him. All things were made through him. It's not just... I've tried to find ways to to wrap my head around this and then explain it to you. It's not just that Jesus was the payment for our sins. It's that he was this magnificent creator, the creator of the universe that became the payment for our sins. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So he created the world. He created the universe. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of of the glory of God. What does that mean that he's the radiance? Well, we think of radiation, right? Radiated heat, um, radiators. You know, used to be in, in the old houses, there are probably still some out there, the radiator heaters that would radiate heat and heat the house that way. I want to borrow from an analogy that I heard from Brother Mike Minson from Oklahoma City talking about the, the sun in our solar system and how it, we feel the effects of that. And the effects of that are not the sun itself, it's the radiation that the sun emits. It's, it's, the, it's the radiance of the sun, the heat, the light that we feel, the vitamin D that we receive from the sun, the benefits, all the, all the benefits that we receive from the sun. And granted, you can spend too much time in the sun. Every analogy breaks down somewhere, right? But we, we feel the effects of that. We feel the effects of the sun. We can't get close to the sun. It'd burn us up in a second. But the heat and the light, the benefit we receive from that is the radiance of the sun. And the, the benefit, the spiritual benefit, and the, the spiritual light, if you will, we receive from God is through Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the radiant spiritual heat, spiritual light, spiritual vitamin D, whatever you want to call it. But that is Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 4 and 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is the ultimate benefit of Jesus Christ? It is the gospel. It is the gospel that leads us to him, that forgives us for our sins, that gives us a relationship with him. Satan tries to blind the world to that. And the only way that happens is if we let him do it. You cannot block the light, the radiance that is Jesus Christ. His message is there for us if we want to hear it. Acts chapter 26, verse 17 says, Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. This is Jesus speaking to Paul, by the way. Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Where are we going to find the true light that can give us the forgiveness of sins? A place among those who are sanctified It only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. That is where the true light is. That's the only way we can go from darkness to light. Is to receive the light that he offers. And to have faith. Put our faith and trust in him. And that's why we have the message. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Hear him. You're not going to receive sanctification, you're not going to receive forgiveness of sins by any other means except Jesus Christ, because he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. 
Again, how do you separate what it means for him to be the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature? It almost means the same thing. What does it mean that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature? Well, this word imprint is meant to sort of bring to mind the idea of a signet ring. I got a picture up here of a, of a just, I did a Google search and found this. Don't even know what this ring is, what it represents. I hope it's nothing nefarious. Uh, it's just a, a guy riding a horse with a banner. But you can see in this wax here, looks suspiciously like earwax to me. It's kind of nasty looking. I don't know why they chose like dirt colored wax, but they did. And it's an exact imprint. I don't know how well this is showing up for you, but the, the picture you see in this wax is exactly the same as what's on the ring. It is the, it's an impression of that. The exact imprint of the nature of that ring is found in that glob of wax. And Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God, who God is, how God is, why he is, when he is, why he is. That's Jesus Christ, the exact imprint of God's nature. Here are a bunch of different renderings of this in different uh, translations of the Bible. And the reason I put these up here, we're not going to read through them all individually, but you'll notice keywords like exact or flawless, the true image. Um, what you're seeing here to me is all these things say the same thing, basically. And what we're seeing is a very lack, um, not a lack, the, the, the words used in Greek here were very unambiguous. They're very clear. There was no, there's nothing lost in translation here, regardless of the translations. The very image of God, and even this last one, the exact representation of his very being, that's from the New World Translation. And if you don't know what that is, that is the Bible that is used by the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ. And I don't know how they can get around this. This is in their Bible, the exact representation of his very being. How can you get around that? I'm not trying to, you know, to knock the, the Jehovah's Witness this morning, but I'm just showing that there is no question of what's going on here. Jesus Christ is God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. When you've seen Christ, you've seen God. Jesus said that I and my Father are one. If you listen to me, you listen to the Father. If you hear me, you hear the Father. If you obey me, you obey the Father. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Jesus, the fullness of deity, the fullness of God, dwells in a body. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Why would you listen to anyone else? Why would you put your faith and trust in anything else? He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We've already established he's the creator of the universe. He's the heir of the universe. Of course, he upholds it with the power of his word. Now, I don't know for certain, but I just suppose that Calvinists like this verse. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. It seems to me it would play into their ideas of the sovereignty of God and how, how God makes everything happen. Nothing happens without God making it happen. Every leaf that falls, every, every car that breaks down, every roll of the dice, the result of that is what God has designed. By that sort of attitude, if I drop this pin, it's because God made it happen first couple of times I did that, the lid popped off. And I was going to say, oh man, God made the lid pop off. I didn't make for it to happen, but God did. 
But you see what I'm getting at. That is not what this is saying here. This isn't saying that God controls every little thing that happens. What it says is that the universe, from whatever happens way out into space at the farthest reaches of the universe, all the way down at the bottom of the sea at a microbiotic level, his word sustains all that. His power sustains all that. He created it, he sustains it, and he's the heir of it. And you and I are part of that. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. We've already read Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Verse 17 says, He is before all things, and all things hold in him. All things hold together. Every little thing holds together because Jesus Christ created the world, and the, and the word of his power that created it also sustains it. Acts chapter 17, verse 28, that includes you and I. It says, for in him we live, move, and have our being. Everything that we do, down to the very, every breath we take, every beat of our heart, and who we are as a person is because of the word of the power of Jesus Christ. But there's a spiritual side of this coin, too. Not only physically and everything that we can see and hear and touch and taste and all that, but also spiritually, he upholds everything by the word of his power. In John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's not talking about physical hunger or physical thirst. He's talking about spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst. I am the bread of life. And this drives home even more the fact, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Where are you going to find spiritual sustenance? You think you're going to find satisfaction with some other religion? Think you're going to find satisfaction in your own self-righteousness and trying to earn your way to heaven? Think you're going to find it in the entertainment of this world, the things this world has to offer, the bottom line of your bank account and stock portfolio? Only in Jesus Christ will you find the bread of life. Only in him can you be satisfied. This next phrase is, is a, to me, it should be a shocking phrase for us to think about. After making purification for sins. And let's just let that sink in for a second. The heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he made purification for sins. The creator of the universe, who has all power and all authority, he's the one that made purification for sins. And to the Jewish Christians to whom this letter was written, this would have been, should have been, a shocking statement. Because they, under the law of Moses, knew about sanctification. They understood the idea of sacrifice and how that was to be paid with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. And the price that was paid was the blood of the Son of God. He made purification for sins. The writer goes on in Hebrews chapter 9 to talk about this. Verse number 12. He entered in once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Not by the blood of bulls and calves. You know, the best that that could ever do was sort of temporarily roll things forward. 
year after year, day after day, blood was shed at the temple in the tabernacle. Blood was shed, but it took the blood of our Savior to do it right. You know, when you consider, we said it's a shocking statement, but when you consider the magnitude of the sin of humanity, all sin, it shouldn't be surprising that the only, only the magnificent creator of the universe would be able to atone for that. And that's exactly what he did. So after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the result. The final attribute, the final wonder of Christ we want to talk about today. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, becoming heir of all things, I think, at this point. Why? Because of his work that he did on the cross. Because he made purification for sins. And you know, when he sat down at the right hand of the majesty, the end of the story is not the death of Jesus, but it's the very beginning. It's where it all starts for you and I. The result of this magnificent, holy, awesome creator who, did, who made everything, who sustains everything, who's the heir of all things, and you and I are part of his family. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I don't know if y'all are tired of me from quoting from Ephesians or not. I'm not tired of it yet. I probably won't ever be tired of it. I love this passage in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2 we're going to read here in a second. Paul is talking to them about certain things he wants them to know and to understand and internalize and to realize. And he says there in verse number 19 that he wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This mighty work, this powerful work that God did, when he did what? When he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand. And we talked earlier about the the implications of being joint heirs and fellow heirs with Jesus, how he's the heir of all things. Well, Paul goes on in the next chapter, and he really brings this home for you and me. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And what? Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Guess what happens when we become child of God? He raises us with him, and he seats us with him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Why are you going to go anywhere else? What an amazing description of Jesus Christ and his glory, the wonders of what he's done for us. God's final word, his final message to humanity that message is namely that Jesus is superior in every way to the angels, to Moses, to the law, the prophets, the Levitical priesthood, the system of sacrifices that were laid out before. Those things had their place and served their purpose. But God is saying to you and I today, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Hear him. Put your faith and your trust in him. 
And so he transitions into the next part of his letter, which is that Jesus is superior to the angels. He says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus Christ is better than anything you can imagine. He's superior to anything that you think will help you in this world. Peter puts it into words for us in 2 Peter chapter 1. He references the very event we've been quoting throughout this whole thing, and that is the transfiguration. He says in 2 Peter 1 verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter said we didn't make this stuff up. Jesus Christ isn't some myth invented by men like the, the Greek mythology and the Roman mythology and whatever else mythology you can think of. This isn't cleverly designed myth. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there, Peter says, on that mountain when he was transfigured, when Moses and Elijah appeared and we heard the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Where are you going to put your faith? Where are you going to put your trust? Where are you going to put your hope? If it's not in Jesus Christ, it's in the wrong place. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I don't know where you stand before God this morning. Maybe you've never been obedient to the gospel. Maybe you've never named the name of Jesus. Maybe you've never received the light that is the radiance of God's glory and obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. My question to you this morning would be, why not? What are you waiting for that's so much better? Are you waiting for your own life to get into order and to make sense and to feel like you deserve God's grace? You'll never get there. Are you putting your faith and trust in the things of this world and what it can provide? You'll never be satisfied. Only Jesus Christ can give you what you need. And what you need should be what you want. Make the decision today to give your life to Jesus Christ. If you want to be baptized, we want to help you right now to do that. If you need the prayers of the church, please come. Have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.